This is The Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma. Managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? Our guest today is a father and grandfather who's come to the realization that he'd rather be a mother. Now, it's nothing to do with gender or sexuality. Rather, it's the role, the classic maternal role of primary nurturer. Now, how he came to that conclusion and to a complete 180 regarding religion and politics is an amazing story. With his latest book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, we're thrilled to welcome New York Times bestselling author Frank Schaefer. And let me tell you a little bit about Frank. Frank's book, former books, include Crazy for God and Keeping Faith, a father-son story about love and the U.S. Marine Corps, which he wrote with his own son. Frank is also a Hollywood film director, screenwriter, and public speaker. Born in Switzerland in the early 1950s, he is the son of the late theologian and author Francis Schaeffer. He comes from pretty conserv- a pretty conservative background, religiously and politically, and he's flipped the script on his own life. Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy has an interesting long title. And in his tweet uh, a few weeks ago, he stated... 22 days to November 2nd, the release date for the book, when my book comes out. And he says, Frank, if you want paid paternity leave, women's rights, permanent extending of the expanded child tax care credit, new spending on child care and preschool, please buy everyone you care about a copy of my book. Frank, welcome and tell us about your new project. Well, first of all, Maura and Christy, thank you so much for having me on The Balanced Dilemma following COVID. This is the first time I've been in a radio station for, I don't know, 18 months. I do a lot online. uh, I do a lot on Zoom. But I haven't actually sat in a studio now for a long time. So I've got a smile on my face because it's like, oh, the real world still exists out there. Thank you for making my day. And this also is the first thing that I've done for the book outside of my own promotional efforts in terms of radio or TV or interviews. So this is really a wonderful day for me. And the launch of the book. So now I have said all that nice stuff. What did you ask me again? Well, we <clears throat> want to hear about this book. Are you sharing the secret to happiness or giving a formula to achieve it? Tell us about it. Well, let me, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, I'm pushing 70. I'll be 70 next August. I've been married to Jeannie now for 52 years. We have three grown children and five grandchildren. The three youngest of those five now ages 12, 10, and seven literally live across the street in my neighborhood. Now, they happen to be the children of my youngest son, John, who was in the Marine Corps, fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, came back in one piece, thank God, went to the University of Chicago, married a girl he had known since high school, had these babies, and moved into my neighborhood. You know, for the years he was gone, every time I heard the crunch of the gravel on the driveway, even if it was just the postman, my heart just stopped because he was in combat. And the way the Marine Corps tells you when you've lost your son is they drive up to your house in an official van with two Marines in dress blue uniforms, night or day. They get out and they give you the bad news. That year is just like a a hole in my life. I hardly slept. 
I can't remember day to day except waiting for satellite calls. When I walked down that driveway with little Nora, who's the youngest of those three now, holding her hand, um, it is like some sort of prophetic manifestation of an actual answer to prayer. So the first thing I would say is when I talk about nurture and caregiving, it's not just theoretical for me because for the last 12 years, Jeannie and I, and me personally, not just helping Jeannie, but I have been the primary caregiver for my three youngest grandchildren while my son and my daughter-in-law, Becky, have been working. So I believe in women's careers. I believe in men's careers. I believe in jobs. I believe in commerce. Put my money where my mouth is. I turned down about 120 speaking invitations to colleges all over the country that supplement my income as a writer and instead got up every day when the kids were preschool. I was the preschool. I renovated my barn and turned it into an art studio and playroom and a carpentry shop for the kids. I cook for them every single day, literally cook for them after school snacks. I enjoy cooking, so I cook for them. Um, During COVID, they sheltered in our home every day while the parents were working from home. So this this book, uh, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, comes out of two sets of experiences. One, Jeannie and I married very young. I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18. That's 52 years ago. In a fundamentalist missionary commune in Switzerland, no less. Talk about a weird place to do that. Um, I don't know who those kids were, but I do know that Jeannie and I are very much in love and care for each other today. We've been through a, a lot of stuff, and we can get into some of that here. So the book comes out of two things. The experience of someone who's been in a relationship for a long time who has changed from a sort of a a jerk teenager raised in a fundamentalist Christian home where the man is supposed to be in charge, throw his weight around, boss the women, boss the children. God has, by divine right, put you in charge of the universe. To a position where, um, you know, Jeannie is, is literally my best and dearest and closest friend. And it's not a question of domination or male role and female role. That has long since gone away. And in sharing the child care for our three youngest of five grandchildren, the relationship has blossomed in a completely new way. And that is we get a second bite at the apple. I was pretty much of a lousy father to my children. First of all, I was on the road six months of the year in the film business and, and in the evangelical work I did, and then as a writer. And then secondly, far too harsh as a teenage father, throwing his weight around, coming from this reformed Calvinist biblical position of like, okay, the male is supposed to be in charge, disciplinarian. So the way I would put it, and then I'm going to stop rattling on, but you asked where the book comes from, is that I have reparented myself through parenting these three grandchildren. I have been able to get a second and a third chance. I have been able to be the grandfather to them that I wish my parents had been to me and that I had had the wisdom and experience to be to my three children. And out of that has come a book. And, of course, the book is, a lo- is, is about a lot more than my own uh, memories and biography in this, and I've written many other books as well. It has a lot to do with women's rights. It has a lot to do with family rights. It has a lot to do with the legislative package that can do better for children and families. But the basis of this book is completely personal, and that's why I tell stories about my grandchildren and childcare in it. It simply is not just a sciencey book and a book of facts. It has a lot of personal information in it about one family and that family's journey, so that it's a memoir and it's also a book about something that I hope I've fleshed out in a way that has some facts in it as well. And that's what makes it so readable. It's a book I've read. 
And I think uh, it's it touches upon a lot of the points th- uh, that you've raised here. And, you know, just to tell you, one thing that comes out of this, we are always addressing at this show through several of our former guests um, how couples can work together mm-hmm. in raising their family. And you mentioned that you had a different history with your younger children, and now you've taken on a different role with your grandchildren. Do you think that you are laying out a formula that families can use in modern day? Yeah, I mean, I would go further than that and just say that had I read this book and taken it seriously when I was a young married man and done what it said, or if I had use this book to inform my parenting, or if I had used this book as a way to see my wife through the lens of real personhood instead of she's my wife and what is her role, um, it would have changed our lives. And I also think that if our legislators read this book right now in government, they would have the kind of plan, as it were, I haven't written the legislation, but they would know the priorities that would actually change lives and turn our country into a pro-family country rather than a a country that's full of fake family values where we talk about valuing children and families and we talk about nurturing and so forth and so on. But when you look at actually what the government provides in terms of support, whether it's local or federal, when you look about the kind of choices that are given to women and others in these things, you know, if you designed a culture right now to be as anti-family, anti-child, and anti-woman as possible, modern United States would probably be the country. Why? What is it? Well, let's just take a couple basic things. You have, uh, you know, you've had, and we can get into this a little more. And we'll be right back. This is The Balanced Dilemma. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Frank Schaefer. Frank, what is it, what is the problem that you've identified with how our society is set up? Well, Maura, what I talk about in the book um, is very basic, but it's also kind of revolutionary in the sense that we've had a lot of talk about family values, say, from the conservative right. And then you have talk about family values from the left, and you have the feminist movement that's come out of the 70s and before that. None of these folks who have talked about these issues have been willing to start over. I'll give you just one example. I think You know, when the feminists emerged in the 1970s, which I talk about in the book, I have a very pro-feminist chapter in my book, and I consider myself as a male feminist. But in a way, the package that was adopted was a commercial package that said, look, jobs and career and companies have been set up along the lines of catering to the breadwinner in the male model of the 1940s and 50s. You can play in this sandbox if you want, but we are going to pretend you don't have a family. We are not going to do anything to accommodate both women or men who want to be caregivers. We're not going to give you time off when you have a child significantly to take care of preschool children. If you come back to your job as a man, for instance, having taken paternity leave, if you're lucky enough to be in a company that offers it, a lot of the men I talk to say they feel their careers suffer. Well, if that's true, even in the male model, imagine for women who come to the office already as a liability in view of corporate America because they might get pregnant, heaven for for fend, then they want to leave their career for a while and come back to it. Folks are not taken seriously. So what we need to do is, first of all, switch priorities and say our human relationships matter more than any career choice or any educational choice. We've got to start putting those first. And this is not a male, female, non-binary gender issue. This is for everybody. So that 
What we need is a culture where paternity leave and maternity leave is the norm, not an exception, where there's an absolute guarantee of returning to your job in the position in which you left it, even if it's five years later, that it is absolutely illegal to discriminate against people on the basis of the options they take for family leave, where there is support for child care, where it's completely normal for as many men to stay home with a younger child or younger children for a number of years as it is women, where the career path laid out for kids in college is not that, oh, you have to have a career first and then maybe even you have permission to fall in love a little later, be careful, don't have a relationship now in school, it'll distract you from your career, where we actually teach people from birth forward that what matters in their lives is the warmth of human relationships where they both give and experience love. If that became the national priority, we would have a completely different culture for men, women, non-binary people alike. Where I was, I was going to stop you earlier because it almost sounds like you are advocating for what I'd call the Northern European model, the Sweden Denmark um, model. Is, is actually, that? actually not. I mean, in a way, I am. I like the fact that Scandinavian countries, where my daughter, for instance, brought up my two older grandchildren in Finland, she was able to stay home, and her husband and she swapped off. They had some state support. A, a nurse came once a week to check on the young children. There was a kind of a, a, a socialist approach. But interestingly, in Scandinavia, for instance, Sweden, a lot of the studies I've done for the book and reading through some of the material, a lot of men in those cultures don't take time off. They feel it affects their career. So the funny thing is the socialist kind of benefit means nothing if it's still into the corporate culture that puts career ahead of relationship. Until that flips, until people actually care about the love they give and the love they receive more than the money they make, the job title and their position, even when there are socialist interventions on behalf of, say, parental leave, it doesn't actually change the culture. It just means that you go home for a couple months more somewhere or that you have some state subsidy. I'm talking at looking at the entire structure of Western corporate capitalist culture and not turning it into a socialist regime or looking for government handouts or people being supported by the government so they change their life. I'll put it in a way, it's going to sound flippant, but it goes to the heart of things. It's a matter of what's cool. It's a matter of what you want to do. It's a matter of aspiration. And as long as we're pointing young people from grade school forward toward career, do big fancy things, get an important career, get a job, your job title matters. I mean, just look at one fact. The average American moves 11 times in their lifetime, as I put in the book, for career. Why? Because more money, more prestige, more title. Then you have statistics about loneliness saying they feel alone. There's no family nearby to help. Everyone feels like an island. Well, duh, we move 11 times away from our roots in order to establish better career. So I'm talking about changing that priority. I'm not talking about not having jobs. I'm not talking about everybody doing what I do and which is full-time child care. But I am saying that life has stages. And when you're in the little child stage, that ought to be not just accommodated, but but something to rejoice over. When we fall in love, room ought to be made for young couples, people who want to pair bond, gay, straight, non-binary alike, so that they can put the relationship first. So I just think we have the whole cart and horse situation backwards. It's time to talk about an authentic feminism and authentic family values, authentic pro-family values. And sure, there are going to be some social programs that have to change. There's going to have to be some subsidy of child care, things that are part of a social agenda, you might say, of the Democratic Party right now, for instance. But 
That's not the root of what I'm saying. I'm talking about changing the actual dynamics of how we see life itself. But, Ray, people need money. Yes. And that is why they work, and they call it work for a reason. Sure. And I think of the many men who never even analyze, am I happy in my job or career? How do you get around, you know, that basic, we need to earn money, and most of us want to earn as much as possible to have the life that we want? Yeah, I mean, I earn the most I can to have the life I want as well, but I just turned down a whole roster of university speaking trips because I'm on Social Security and I have Medicare now, so I was able to do it. Okay, so there's also a real world out there, and a young man starting out or a young woman or a young non-binary person is in a different position. But the thing is, if you change your priorities, it isn't a question of having a perfect solution for any of this, but it means from ground zero starting to build a life where on principle and because it makes you happy, not because it's the right thing to do. This is a selfish thing. You will be happier if the quality of the love and the care you receive from others and that you give is the primary focus of your life, period. So if I hear you correctly... It's almost like the concept of if you build it, it they will come. You have to make a personal decision to follow that path. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma with Frank Schaefer. Frank, getting back to our discussion before the break, as I hear it, you're recommending that people make a personal conviction to a certain lifestyle and that this may require them to uh, think outside the box in terms of Uh, employment options and the priority and uh, order in which they do things in their life. One of the uh, profiles that you had in your book was uh, a woman who decided to have children before finishing her PhD, Mm -hmm. where the converse was recommended to her. So is that what I'm hearing you saying here, that people have to make a personal conviction? Or is this more something that you're recommending a policy trend uh, change in the United States? Yeah, well, book recommends a policy change and more than recommends it asks my reader to in their walk of life demand it but it also the point of view of the book and myself is that policy changes are meaningless without social conscience and change so essentially what the book is calling for is not a policy driven change that would never work the book is calling for what covid did to us but on purpose in the sense that it was a time of reflection. The book is sort of a post-COVID blueprint for how to come back to a culture that works better than we were finding ourselves in before COVID. In other but words, you started this book well before COVID. I did, and then I took a year out and rewrote it once it hit. The book went through 27 drafts. It's a five-and-a-half-year project, mainly because I have a bunch of science people in my life, mostly women who teach at university level, who started reading the manuscript and liking it. Myrna Perez, for instance, one of them who teaches women's studies and others like her who were scientists, who were writing back to me and saying, we like this, but you've got to read this, you've got to do that, here's another paper, here's another book to look at. So that it became, it became a kind of a long project, much longer than normal, and then COVID hit, and I thought, you know, the crazy thing is my book is calling for a reconsideration of our priorities, and Mother Nature just sent us a memo and said, you're all going home now, um, you're, that you've got a time out and you're going to be forced to sit and think about what you want to do. And, and as we are coming out of this pandemic, a lot of people are staying home to work, like my son John, for instance, who works out of his house now, only goes into the office one day a week. Um, you have other people who are finding other solutions. But the, the strange thing is there's never been a moment when there are more people thinking about 
what I'm talking about, even if they're drawing different conclusions. But a number of them, like a million women who left the workforce, possibly not by choice, but because they had to. How does your book address that? Well, it addresses it very directly, and I talk about that. And what I say is, is that what sort of a culture do we have where women pay a higher price for a pandemic than any other single group in the in the culture because of the way our jobs and our corporate life is structured. So if ever there has been a proof of the fact that we need to take another look at what it means for families to have a career as a family, the male, the female, the non-binary person, the gay couple, whatever it is, it's now. And I think what happened to women during the pandemic is absolutely iniquitous and basically makes you almost think that there's never been a feminist movement. How can this be that women got the shaft and women were penalized ahead of everybody else? You know, my book, I have a whole chapter and a whole other section on feminism. And basically what I'm saying is we need, a real, we need a real feminism. And the real feminism doesn't tell women to come into the workforce as if they are males with no human connections. They are lovers. They are wives. They are mothers. They are lesbian couples. They are all sorts of things, but they are, ju- they are not simply their job. And I think women have really taken the brunt of the fact that this culture is so career-oriented. My own daughter, who's a CEO in New York City of an investment company, tells me how, and I've talked to Christy about this privately, you know, women who are friends of mine, Christy, my daughter, other people, talk about how they lie when they're not at work doing something for their family. They have to lie about it and pretend they're in the office. They can't just say, I'm doing a school pickup, or I'm taking care of my elderly mother, or whatever it is. They've got to pretend that none of this matters and it's job, 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 job. Well, that is, that is crap. And it's crap from a male point of view too because men do the same thing. The only thing is they used to pretend and now they were all on Zoom meetings and their toddler was running through the background so you knew that this guy who ran a bank had a kid. Until then, it was as if these are watertight compartments and that is just BS. That's not the way the world should be. So, Frank, just for the record, I prefer the word misrepresent to yeah. lie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and there's nothing super important that I'm misrepresenting about. More, you have a question. Yes. One, there's a quote in your book that struck us yeah. and I wanna, I'm going to read it and then I want to ask you about it. As a 68-year-old white heterosexual Okay, boomer, father and grandfather. I discovered something surprising about myself in the pandemic. I'd rather be a mother. It goes on. I'm using the word mother or mothering as a verb describing the practice of providing nurturing, creative, joy-filled child care as a shared luminous gift given a child by any person of any gender. What do you mean? And it's kind of a revelation and shocking. Well, I'm comparing... What I do with my grandchildren, which is such a pleasure, to the duties of fatherhood when I was up to my neck in my striving period of my life, trying to start as an author, trying to do this and do the other. And I was saying, what a shame it is that the quality of the care I'm able to give these grandchildren, because I'm not distracted, I'm not on my way to do something else. This is what I am doing that afternoon. Now, I couldn't have gone back into my younger parenthood days and done the same thing. But if I had had the idea that this is a pleasure and this is a primary task, not something I've got to fit into something else, rather fit the rest of life into this, it would have changed the quality of the care. It sounds like you're describing, though, what most people I know who are grandparents say. They love being grandparents. They have a great time with them on their schedule, and they give them back 
um, at the end of the day or when they're done. And that's not parenting. Well, one of the studies I cite in the book that was really interesting parenthetically was something called the Berlin study, where it's the most comprehensive study of grandparenting that's ever been done. They followed a group of people for over 19 years, and they found the single greatest predictor of longevity was not whether you smoked or not or had diabetes. It was whether you had continuous, regular, almost daily contact with grandchildren after you passed 65. So that's an interesting finding. And it's to nobody's benefit because nobody wants to know about that any, any more than they want to know what they read the, the articles that I quote in the book that the New York Times broke the story about how the number of miscarriages and premature births went down during COVID. Um, statistically, showing that so many women who have been bearing children during the stress of parenting plus everything uh, benefited. So, just on a medical basis. So I, I think we've got to rethink what our priorities are. It's not a question of judging people and saying, if you have a full-time job and someone's doing childcare for you, you're a bad person. It's, a, it's rather a question of saying, what makes us happy? And what makes us happy in life? Most human beings, ex- ex- with a very few exceptions that I won't name, but people you can think of, what makes most of us happy is being cared for in some nurturing way and passing on that care to others. And I'm talking about focusing on that. Is there a difference between nurturing and parenting? Yeah, parenting can involve all sorts of things, including sorry duties of discipline and everything else, trying to structure stuff. Nurturing is a completely different thing, and that is, I think it goes back to what I said a moment ago. The difference in quality is when your attention is divided and when it's undivided. So if you if, if, if you can find those moments to give somebody in your life undivided attention, whether it's when you're having sex with your partner, whether it is um, caring for a child and making a sandwich for them, cooking dinner, you know, distracted lovemaking is always a disaster. Distracted childcare is a disaster. When I'm a writer, I get up at 3.30 every morning, so I do my three or four hours of creative work every day, seven days a week, when the phone won't ring because nobody else is up. So it's the same with childcare. If, if, if those times of childcare become an actual priority, not to fit in with everything else, but it's what you're doing right then, it's a totally different quality of experience for but the it, ge- caregiver as well as for the, the recipient. But it almost sounds like you're talking about the difference between quality time versus quantity of time. In a, in a way, although to me, the quality versus quantity of time is kind of a false dichotomy, and we can get into that. This is The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with Frank Schaefer. Frank, given what you've said before, one question that comes to mind is, do you think one parent should stay home to raise the children? And if so, does it matter which parent? I think there should be someone raising children who loves them. And if that is a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, a cousin, an aunt, a biological parent, an adoptive parent. One of the things that I have in my book is a very interesting study that came out of Israel of adoptive gay fathers that shows they have exactly the same brain chemistry and 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 hormonal response to children when they do full-time caregiving as a, a biological mother does. So I use the word parent in the biggest sense. In the but same, you think it should be family. Oh, absolutely. But when I say should... That implies that if you can't do that, you're wrong. I would rather say the optimum care for a child is a loving family member 
whenever possible. But sometimes that isn't possible. Then you have to make sure the person who cares for them is very loving. Look, I had a lovely lady in the village in Switzerland where I was raised in this crazy fundamentalist community that I talk about called Alice Jacquereau. She was the postmistress. She came up and cared for me most mornings when my parents were busy doing other things. I remember Alice as if she was a second mother. Having caregivers who love a child is wonderful. And so I don't think it has to be the biological mother or father, but I do think that most of the time when we have a young child, our lives are so long now comparatively to people in the 19th and the 18th century. It just seems ridiculous to me. We can't take a few years to care for young children at home, get to know them as human beings and bond with them. I think it's a monstrous culture that designs a system where men, women, non-binary people think it's the norm to have a child and then go straight back to work. What insanity. This is like having a young married couple saying, cancel the honeymoon. You know, you have sex once. We'll see you again in six months. It's ridiculous. That's not how human relationships work. So this brings up the question that we discuss quite often here. Can a couple have two equal careers? How do you actually effectuate this utopia that you've laid out for us here that many of us would like to have? But sometimes it's difficult to get all the pieces to fall into place. Look, you know, this sounds like I'm pandering because Maura and Christy are both women and I'm sitting here talking with them. But, you know, my doctor's a woman, my lawyer's a woman, my agent's a woman, my editor's a woman, my partner is a woman. I, you know, I, in, I have spent 12 years making sure my daughter-in-law, Becky, has a career because she's never had to think about this. I've put my money where my mouth is on this. I believe not only in women's careers, not as an anomaly, but as a norm. I wish the only people I worked with were women. All the women I work with are better at what they do than most of the men in the similar job. I think it's the same thing with most couples. I'm being honest with you. I, I joked with the guy who was, <laughs> I was interviewing on my podcast the other day in conversation with Frank Schaefer, who's a famous professor at Georgetown, and his wife is too. It's an interesting couple. And when I had him on, the first thing I qu- question I asked him, I said, listen, do you tell me honestly, do you know anybody who knows you as a couple who likes you better? I've never met a couple where you know, the guy is the upstanding person who everybody loves most. It's always, you know, women hold the world together. Women should be in charge of everything. My point of view is women should have careers. But what is so stupid is living in a culture in which we've made it difficult for that to happen by pretending that it's more natural for a man to have the career at all times. I think we ought to be on a seesaw of trading back and forth. Say you have two kids. Have the male stay home with the child if you're a, if you're a heterosexual couple for the first two, three years. Swap off with, the, with, with his partner, his wife. Same with gay couples. Same with lesbian couples. It's nothing to do with gender. Just, let's just say Maura and Christy were a couple and you had some kids. Why would, why would one of you go to work more than the other? Look, life is long. Little child, as I'm discovering now because I'm running out of babies, Nora is seven. She's in school all day. In other words, that whole childcare period of my life as a grandfather for these three little ones was really effectively over in about eight years when you talk about the intense everyday morning, noon, and night. Eight years out of a lifespan, they're talking about people living till they're 130. What are you going to do with all that time? Do you want to work your whole life? This is ridiculous. Take some time off. Fall in love. Have a child. Then have the child. Enjoy the child. Men are really stupid to think that this is somehow something more natural for women to do. Nurturing is natural to humankind. None of us would be here if in hunter-gatherer societies, in our evolutionary past, these jobs had not been shared. This division of career is a modern phenomena. 
It's against everything evolution teaches us about humankind. It's insane, and we have to change it. So would you recommend that couples employ planning? Uh, I mean, how do we make this work in our lives? Or is it something that when a curveball hits and as you and your wife had happened, you became parents younger, do you just roll with it? What, what, how do we actually make these, this uh, career and life change, how do we put it into action? Well, Jeannie and I were terrifically lucky because pre- pregnant at 17 and 18 and, and we had the child, we're in this evangelical community, whatever you think of the theology, they were loving, they were kind, they cared for us. Free place to live for five years. Three sisters living in the same community who helped with babysitting. We might as well have been in, you know, the most perfect place. And we still had all sorts of problems and difficulties as a young couple. But we need that nurture and support. So first of all, if you have some family stability, that helps. And our culture is designed to break families apart and send them off in other career directions. Secondly, there is a room for, for social policy and state intervention and higher minimum wage and all sorts of things that makes parenting possible in terms of medical care and the rest of it. And then the third thing is social expectation. We have to get away from this idea that it is normal for men to have the high pri- pri- the, the, the high-powered career. We have to get back to the idea that career is something families do, the family farm. You know, I grew up in Switzerland. You looked out at the field. It wasn't that the women had one kind of job doing laundry and the men were out there in the field. They were all turning the hay in the morning together. The kids were helping out. If we could get that mentality back, that there's a part of life, okay, somebody's home with a young child. Now we're moving to another stage of life. Our culture doesn't accommodate that, and our society doesn't accommodate it. It reminds me of something one of our guests, a prior guest said about looking at the family unit as a goal, you know, a a goal holistically as opposed to the individually. So one of the questions we always ask, and we have to ask you is, do you think people can have it all, and particularly women, and all at the same time? And I gather to some extent it comes down to how you define all. Yeah, and, and what your priorities are. So no, you cannot have it all, and you cannot ever have it all at the same time. And it has nothing to do with male, female, non-binary gay, straight. It has to do with mortality. Life is short. You have to make your choices of what matters most. Will you ever get there? No. But if you start out with the right priorities, you will get much further down a path to a life that is enjoyable and loving and wonderful than you will if you start out with the wrong priorities. And I'm just saying our priorities in this culture are entirely wrong. Life is not about money, prestige, power over others. Life is about care receiving care and receiving love. Anybody who thinks about it realizes that all that makes their life worthwhile has a name attached to it. That name may be a spouse or a child or a loved one. It's never the thing. Nobody reminisces when they get older, when they are my age, about like, oh, gee, I remember what it was like the morning I got a first good review of my novel Portofino. No. Compared to the pictures I have stuck on my kitchen wall that Nora has drawn over the years... That is what gets the warm glow in my heart. And I'm not the exception. That is the normal human reaction to life. You know, this is the perfect book, uh, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Frank, your book is perfect for book clubs. 
and I understand you're available to zoom in if people want Absolutely. to have a book club. It's It promotes discussion on all different levels. And I just want to take the opportunity to remind our listeners that they can find us on the web at thebalancedilemma.com, where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for newsletters, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. You can also follow us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. And podcast episodes are also available for listening wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple iTunes, Google, Spotify. Frank, a lot of what you discussed are structural, excuse me, changes needed business-wise, society-wise. We're not there yet. In the meantime, what is your advice to families, to women, how to navigate this time period? Well, when it comes to politics, vote for people whether they're Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians, whomever, who in their own lives demonstrate some sensitivity to the fact that the people around them matter more than their job title. That's a qualification I'd put ahead of anything else. The second thing is, is when it comes to your own life, get your priorities straight. And, and, and that includes demands. You know, don't, don't think you can have a relationship with someone who's going to share childcare with you if their idea of life is they've set a, a, a monetary number of how much they want to earn by the time they're 30 or 40, whatever. This is crap. Basically, what you want to do is be aligned with people, whether you're a lesbian, single, unattached, gay, straight, married, partnered, unpartnered. Look, we all have children, even those who have not had children, because we are in the role of caregiver. You two, Moore and Christy, right now this morning, are mothering me in the sense I mean it. I have a new book. I have to tell people about it. You've had the grace and the kindness to invite me to your podcast and your show so that I can share this. And before the show, we were talking about what? I didn't ask you how much you earned, Maura. Christy, you weren't telling me about you know, what you do for your living. What did we all three start talking about right away? We started talking about our kids, good, bad, in between, the good times, the bad times, family, and the rest of it. Why? Because that's what real human beings do. We talk about the people in our lives we love, even if we haven't had children. This book is just as much for somebody who's unattached and unpair bonded and will never have a child. They, too, can care about caregiving. My son, Francis, is 50 years old. He is not pair bonded with anybody. He has no child. He is a teacher in a high school. He does science. I have parents come up to me with tears in their eyes and thank me for the fact that when he does extra math with their kids, he also cooks them lunch. That also is mothering. We could go on forever with you, Frank. But it's been it's been wonderful talking to Frank Schaefer. Uh, look for his book. Yes, thank you, Frank. And this is Christy Derrico, and we're signing off on the Balanced Dilemma. And I'm Maura Carlin. <laughs>